0: successful lady who is in the multifamily real estate space, taking distressed properties and stabilizing them. And and by the way, it may be other asset classes. I'm not sure, but that's what we get to find out on this podcast, not to mention a bunch of other things. She is the CEO of Clear Investment Group. She is Amy Rubenstein. Amy, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: You got it. So Amy, tell me a little bit about yourself prior to your foray into the wild world of real estate.
1: <laughs> uh, well, I've been in real estate for 20 years, so it's been, it's been a long time. But before that, and I guess throughout, I, I actually studied theater and economics in college and I uh, also, uh, run a nonprofit theater. So that is that's the other side, and that's the side that existed before real estate. And then I got into real estate, needing a way to support myself. So, <laughs> so that happened about twenty years ago.
0: Wow! And you've done more than support yourself. It looks like. And out of curiosity, like have you done? Have you acted yourself?
1: Oh yes, yes. That 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 was what I was doing uh, after I graduated college. No, I, I, I act a bit now, but usually when I write stuff myself and that's, you know, something that, that is, is a passion project, but most of my world is real estate now.
0: Most of your world. So did you like try to like get into like movie acting and did you ever like go to LA and, you know, try to break the ranks and become a star?
1: I lived in l a for ten years. That actually is where I started um my real estate career so worked there for a long time. yeah, my love in in the in the acting world is really in theater but yes, I did live in l a and do that thing
0: okay, so you're tough because you you've you've chosen two incredibly difficult paths to to be successful and
1: well, how, well, so, one that one that has very little control and one that has a lot of control. So re- real estate is a is a much easier path. <laughs> I'll okay. definitely say that.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it was easy. So real estate's easy. Okay, now I get it. Um, well, how, how on earth do you go from you know theater? How does real estate get on your horizon? I see you went to Brandeis. They're not known, I don't believe, for their like real estate school. So how how, how does Amy get into real estate?
1: Well, I got into real estate in 2003, and I will say that you didn't have to be very smart to do well in 2003. Um, So those were good learning years, those first few years when the market was really on its way up. I had bought and sold a house and um, sold it in in about six months unexpectedly and did well on that. And so I, I did it again with a condo and did well on that. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. Because this is easier than waitressing, and so I started learning more about real estate, got my broker's license, um, and then syndicated a very small deal—six studio apartments, no parking—and uh, I syndicated that with a, a, a couple friends and family members, and then uh, fixed those six units up and rented them out, and sold that, and bought. Two more buildings and did the same thing and sold those two and bought four buildings and did the same thing and before I knew it, it was a full time gig.
0: And, and where were these properties?
1: In Hollywood, I started in Hollywood. Actually, the first two buildings I bought um, were owned by Charlie Chaplin. He was on title, which was I thought very exciting at the time. And but and then it it just took off. I I, I spent those ten years in L.A. So specialized in rent control, which was an interesting way to learn about real estate, an um, interesting way to get into it, uh, to really dig deep into the legal side of it. Cause that's what rent control is about. And, and then my purchases got larger and larger and the buildings grew and, um, I dabbled in all sorts of asset classes. Uh, but what I really, uh, was passionate about was, multifamily, but very specifically workforce housing, C-class assets, and and mostly finding distressed properties and then turning them around and stabilizing them. And that's what I love the most. And that's really where I focus.
0: Don't take this the wrong way. But if there you were in a room with like a hundred random other people, and it doesn't matter where this room would be, and you were to say, okay, who, who is the person in here that that's, that's, has a passion for turning around C-class properties, you would probably be the last one that I would pick.
1: (laughs) You know, I love it. I love how tangible it is. I love seeing the change happen so quickly. Um, I like changing communities. And I don't mean to sound too altruistic because we are a for-profit, but we do really great things. We really turn around communities. We're really good to our tenants. We get people, uh, our tenants like us. We make a big difference wherever we go.
0: and And I love that. So what I'm getting is this pattern where, you know, you sold a house, you sold a condo in 2003 was like, like you said, impeccable, impeccable timing, like 03, 04, whatever. And you just bought one and it just went up like 30%, you know, so yeah. So, and then you, you know, but you know, you've got, uh, as they say in the business chutzpah and you, you, not everybody would have done what you did and it took some skill you know, going into multifamily, even four and six unit. I mean, most people would never have the, the, they would never think like that. And so I guess, where then is it today? I looked at your website, obviously, and it looks like you're in clearly, you know, big, you know, 400, 600 unit kind of things and places that, you know, I've personally never been to. And so is it still mostly C-class? And in the other thing I keep hearing, and I shouldn't cloud a simple question, but That C-class is just really, really, really hard, hard to budget CapEx for, tough tenants right now with inflation, high delinquencies, expenses going up, et cetera, et cetera. So like, how does all this, you know, how does this, all this play out for you?
1: So I think it's the easiest class to work in. Personally, I think my model is the simplest of real estate models. But I guess people get good at what they do, and and it seems simpler. I look at other models, and I think, how do they do that? I don't know how people make money in Class A real estate. I don't I don't get that. But. Um, what we buy is things that yes have high delinquencies, high vacancies. Those are the things that we look for. But what we're looking for is a submarket where the rest of the neighborhood is performing in a in a much better way. You know, C class is a is an area that stays strong through the ups and the downs, um, comparative to other classes. You know, when things get really rough, uh, it hurts the A's and the B's. And when things are really good, it hurts the D's, and so I find that the C class is what is the most stable of all of the asset classes. It's it's the workforce housing. It's people in the in the range of forty to sixty five thousand dollars of annual income or annual household incomes, and that's our janitors, our bus drivers, teachers, you know, waitresses. It's it is the people. It's the people that keep this country running, and so. I actually, we have, we have great tenants. When we turn around a building and when we're done with it, we produce a product that is um, affordable, habitable, safe communities that people can feel proud to live in. When we first take it over, it's not always the case. So we do get we do get crime and vacancy and delinquencies, and that's what, what it looks like when we take over. But that's not how the neighbors uh, how the neighbors are. If if it's an area that's going to be Dangerous or um, the whole area has high vacancy or the whole area is um, falling apart, that's not really gonna be our thing. Uh, we don't we don't join sinking ships. But if it's just this particular property, that's what we're looking for. We're looking, we're looking for a property in a neighborhood that is just underperforming for that submarket. And then we're bringing it up to the levels of that submarket. That's what we, that's what we try to do. Uh, so how, I mean, as far as budgeting for, for CapEx and such, I would say the hardest part of our job is on the due diligence side before we buy the property. And that's where we go in and try to figure out what is this going to cost? And what do we have to do to this property? And what are these tenants like? And how will we be welcomed into this community? Um, and those are the things that we work on to figure out. Before we get in, and so then we then we model for here's what it's going to cost to turn this whole complex around. Here are the uh, here are the tenants that we're given at this at this moment, and we have to dissect why is the property not functioning well, and can we solve those problems? And that's all part of our due diligence.
0: How, how do you quantify, and you know maybe this isn't something you can, but how, how do you determine whether you'll be welcomed into the community?
1: It's a, that's a hugely important uh, thing for us to do. So we have a few people that we need to touch base with. <laughs> we need to make sure that the tenants want us there. So we are walking through every single unit that we buy, literally every single unit. And we talk to all of the tenants and we ask them, why haven't you paid your rent? And we get a variety of answers from these tenants. It could be, well, my neighbor stopped paying their rent and they haven't been evicted. So we stopped paying our rent. Or it could be, I haven't had my toilet working in six months. So why am I going to pay my rent? Or it could be, I have five months of rent checks sitting right here on my kitchen counter, but nobody ever asked me for rent. So it could be a whole variety of reasons. And it's not always just that there's hostile tenants that don't want to pay their rent. That's Sometimes the case, but I wouldn't even say that's the majority of the time. It usually is communication has fallen apart from the property and, uh, the, the ownership is not speaking to the tenants for a variety of reasons. You know, owners could fall into mo- most of these owners that we buy from are, are in a distressed situation. So they have run out of money. Um, they've overextended themselves. There could be any number of reasons why the property isn't functioning well. So that, that's what we have to figure out first as far as the tenants. And then when we tell the tenants our plan, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come in and we're going to fix your toilet. We're going to come in and we're going to fix that leaky faucet. We're going to replace the, the parking lot that is filled with potholes. So you can't drive your car in here. We're going to reopen that pool that hasn't been opened in three years. And we tell them what our plan is and what we're going to do. And we say, if we do all of this, are you, do you want to stay and pay your rent? And that's how we assess for each particular unit if we think someone's going to stay and pay the rent or if they're going to move out, we're going to have to um, budget for turning that unit. Um, so that it's that's the tenant side of it. So communication with the tenants is really important to us. On the other side, we've got the city, mayor's office, the police department, code enforcement. And we want to make sure that all of those people are welcome, welcoming us into their uh, community. And if they're not welcoming us, it's not the right place for us. We want to come in and we want to be the heroes. We want to be the darling of that city um, so that people are really excited about having us there. And uh, generally, people are. We lay out our plan. We give people a timeline. We tell them what we're doing and how we're going to accomplish it. And... People are generally on board with
0: that. So on the um, walking through the units, I mean, it seems that it seems really simplistic and just I, I could imagine a lot of people don't do it probably because it just takes a lot of um, you know, gumption and, you know, which is a short supply these days. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But So 400 units, how long does it take to walk every single unit and who's the we that does it?
1: Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we schedule three minutes per unit. And it is a variety of people that do this. I always do it myself. I don't do. I don't get to do every single unit myself. But I don't buy a complex where I don't walk uh, for at least a day or two. <laughs> so I, I'm out there doing it. Um, and then I have other people in my in our staff. Uh, our head of asset management will come out with me, and then we'll you know depending on how many units we're walking, we'll pull a. a few people from our office. We have some various people that can do it. And it's, it's pretty systematic. As far as a, um, from a construction standpoint, we're bringing out our um, plumbers and electricians and roofers and um, structural engineers. We're bringing out those people to walk splatterings of units. We're identifying where we see a big issue. And then we're bringing in experts for those particular, to, to look at those particular things. How do the boilers look? How do the How does the plumbing look? How do the breakers look? When was the, when was, when were the roofs last replaced? That stuff. Uh, but as far as, you know, we, we are walking our, our core team from our office is walking every single unit ourselves and we're going through a checklist. Um, we walk around with, with computers and we're literally checking off all of these various, uh, you know, do we have to replace the floors? We have to replace the walls. Um, do we have to replace the appliances and literally going through check, 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 check. So it, it could take a could take anywhere from a day to a week to a walk to complex.
0: A, a day to a week, and so you're you're in markets, kind of you know in 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 various in sundry places. And so, how do you find the teams? You know the the plumber, the electrician, the roofer. How do you assemble those teams when you go to a different market? Kind of a simple question, but you must yes. have a a, a a method to your madness.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, well, we have a crew. We have a construction crew that works with us. They travel around the country with us. Uh, but when we come into a new, a new sub market, we will pull in, we like to get to know some experts in certain areas because while well, we have a construction team that will travel, our construction team is really doing mostly unit terms. Um, they're doing general work and not specific work. Like uh, we're outsourcing. Paving, roofs, major electrical work, sprinkler systems, elevators—that's the kind of stuff we're outsourcing. And so, part of our due diligence is making sure that there are enough contractors in a in a town for us to work in. And we will pull in—you know—if it's a thousand-unit complex, we're probably going to pull in three different electricians and three different roofers, and so on and so forth. And then we're using that time to see what's going on with the building and also then to start getting bids on the building. And so we'll, you know, we'll pull in multiple local um, contractors to help us with that.
0: Sounds like uh, a lot of work. And how, how roughly like your organization headcount, like what does it take? What, what do you have? Do you have an office that everybody comes to or some people come to and uh, just the general s- scale of your operation?
1: Yeah. I do not believe in remote work. <laughs> so a part of that is I do own uh, quite a bit of office. <laughs> so I, I really like our staff to be on site all together. We collaborate well together. Um, we're creative together. We problem solve together. I like that feel of a loud, crazy office where we're all um, you know, yelling across the hallway, getting each other's attention and and really working as a team. So our core office is in Chicago. There are about 15 of us there. And then the rest of our staff is at the various properties, um, whether that's managers, uh, leasing agents, janitors, construction workers, uh, regional managers, all of that is a uh, on site at the properties. And so that's where the majority of our staff is. And, and that varies depending on how many um, portfolios we're working on at the time. We're not long term holders. So we never hold a very large portfolio. We buy and sell fairly quickly. So we're two to three year holds. That's all we do. We get in there, we uh, clean it up, stabilize it, get it back on track, and then we move on to the next.
0: What's the deal flow? What's the um, deal? Prices, cap rates—you know, things have changed in the last year. But like you said, I don't know how people make money in Class A, and I'm sitting here going, "Yeah, I get, I, I get it." So, but, but I've also heard the Class C is, you know, depending on the markets, has been just like absurd, like down to a four cap, which is why a lot of people last few have. Bought class A because they're like, well, there's no discrepancy. What's the point? So I'll just do class (laughs) A. So, what's that look like for you?
1: Sure. That's what you see when the market really heats up. You know, that's what we were seeing, you know, 12 months ago, um, where pricing starts to get high. And when the real estate market is hot, everyone's in it. Everyone wants to get in it because it's it's an industry. First of all, it's massive, right? Real estate is everything, it's everywhere. But it's an industry that you can jump into without a ton of background. Doesn't mean you're going to do well. But you, it's accessible. You can jump into it. Uh, it's, it's it's easy concepts to understand, right? So when the market is super super hot, everybody jumps in, and that drives up the pricing. So we love it when interest rates start rising and things start to crumble, and fundamentals of the overall macro economy get a little bit shaky, and that's when things get exciting for us. <laughs> um, which is where we are right now. So these are these are good times for us right now. Um, that's not to say, because I really am a believer that you can buy in any market. There's a, there's never a time where I'm not a buyer. Uh, it's just, you have to search a lot harder. You got to really find stuff. And uh, most of what we buy is not on the market. It's off market stuff. Um, it's usually too messy to get on the market. And so there's always something, there's always someone distressed. There's always some sort of problem somewhere. It's just there's more of it right now, and there's a lot less competition right now, so it's this is a this is a really good time to invest right now.
0: Do you um, random question? I think you do, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you do single asset deals, not a fund. A, am I correct? And B, if I'm correct, why?
1: We do. We uh, have a fund right now going, uh, and there's there's reason for it. Because we've spent, you know, I've spent most of my last 20 years doing a deal by deal. Um, sometimes a sub market by sub market, small funds per sub market. But if I look back over my last 20 years, our investors have had over a 40% annualized return. So those are, is a big number. When I look deal by deal, we have some triple digit returns. We've got some single digit returns, and a whole lot of double digit returns. And I always tell investors, you know, everyone always says, "Which well, which which one's the best one to get in?" Should I get in this one. Do you, how do you feel about this one? Do you love this one? And I say, I love everyone. Everyone that I buy, I love. If I don't love it, I'm not going to buy it. So, I, and and I'm highly invested in every single deal of mine. There's, no, I'm never going to buy a deal that I'm not going to be invested in. Like. No way. Because um, I want to be fully aligned with my investors and with without a conflict of interest. Uh, so when I model out deals, they all look fabulous. I'm not buying a deal. It doesn't look fabulous when I model it out. But can I tell the difference between the one that is going to be a 200% return versus the one that's going to be a 17% return or the one that's going to be a 57% return? It's really hard to see that. You know, real estate, you can, you plan and you model and, uh, through experience and lots and lots of years and many downturns, you, you learn to be a really good, um, guesstimator, but that doesn't mean we're going to know every single thing that's going to happen. You get things that come along like COVID or a hurricane or, uh, you know, some new tax law. There's things that change all the time that are beyond our control. So there's only so much we can do to plan that. And so, sorry, this is a long answer to the question.
0: <laughs> I got time. It's a Saturday. And even if it weren't Saturday, I'd have time. But I even, I even have more time. Saturday.
1: <laughs> so, that, so that brings me back to why do we do a fund? Because I want investors to be able to have a smoothed out return. To be able to really see this, we are taking advantage of the overall market of the overall uh, overall real estate investing, and especially when you hit a downturn like this. Because I will tell you, we never um, play fortune teller. I will never ever make a living or make bets on fortune telling. I'm not a gambler. I I, I don't believe in. I, I'm really actually not a, a massive risk taker. I, I'm fairly conservative. So. I like to have control over what we do and we model for where we are today. We do not, we do not look at or try to guess what the future is going to bring in so much as where are we in the downturn? We know we're in it. Are we in the beginning of it? Are we in the middle of it? Are we in the end of it? We have no idea. We can make all the guesses we want. And I do like to play this game of, let me guess where we're at. Let me guess where interest rates are going to go. But that's a social game I play. Hence my lack of a social life. But that's that's a social game. That's not a game I want to play in my everyday life. So in my everyday work life, right? Um, and so what we say is, all right, we know we're here today. Generally speaking, downturns aren't they don't come and go in a month. So I want to make a buying period. I want to make a fund that buys over the course of 24 months. And over that 24 months, we are really gonna get to experience the full. Um, that full downturn, or a, a, that twenty-four months, should encompass a good portion of a downturn, and that's that's why I love having a fund. Um, it really allows you to to smooth out those returns, and um, and not not really to be a gambler. Um, and then when we're in this downturn, we and when we're modeling out what's going to happen um, going forward we are going to expect that we are going to be selling in a downturn. We're buying in a downturn, we're selling in a downturn. Cap rates are, are higher right now and we are going to model to be selling at very high cap rates because we don't know what's going to happen. Same thing with interest rates. We are modeling to have high interest rates through the entirety of the hold. I'm not going to guess that interest rates are going to go down, you know, we if we go out uh, for dinner on a Saturday night. That's where I'm going to play that game of what, what's going to happen with the interest rates. But but you know, not not in our modeling. We're going to say no, nope, interest rates are going to keep going up a little bit, and they're going to stay high. And that's what that's what we're guessing at. Hmm. So that's why I like a fund.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back when I hear the term distress. Uh, does that just mean somebody's underwater and they're living losing money, or is there more to the definition?
1: Could mean a lot of things, uh, and distress comes in many formats, and and we'll take it in many ways. I particularly like looking for managerial distress as opposed to physical distress. Now, when you have managerial distress, it's going to come with some physical distress, so that's going to happen too, and that's okay. Uh, but what we we're not developers. Uh, I don't do ground up construction and I don't want anything that that looks like ground up construction. So if a building has, you know, 200 units down to the studs, it's not my deal. That's not to say that we won't take on some deferred maintenance, replacing roofs, replacing parking lots, a, a, a building here or there that's, or or um, you know, 10, 20, 50 units that are down to the studs that that we can handle. Um, but I don't want to I don't want a whole complex that's like that. So mostly we're looking for managerial distress, and that comes from usually that happens when the seller is distressed, when the owner is distressed. And so how what does that mean? It most of the time comes with a form of financial distress. So maybe it's in their personal life. they had a bad divorce. Someone in the family died. They uh, they just bought too much. You see this a lot. They just overextended themselves. People grow too quickly. Um, that happens a lot. Today, a lot of it's related to COVID. We, we see a lot of, lots of, of owners did very well through COVID. COVID was hard. It was a hard time to get through as a landlord. Lots of multifamily bounced back very well. I would say probably most of multifamily bounced back very well, but not all of it. Some of it really struggled and it was a downward spiral. As soon as management or a seller or an owner starts to let go of communication, um, maintenance, unit turns, it can spiral really quickly. You got to stay on your properties really uh, very closely, especially through the bad times. And those bad times are the times where it's hardest to keep pumping money into the buildings. So you can sit through a downturn where you are negative cash flowing and you have to keep pumping money into those buildings. And if you stop pumping money into the buildings, things fall apart and people stop paying their rent. And then you have less money to pump into the building and then more people stop paying their rent. And then all of a sudden you don't have money to pay your attorneys. So you don't file evictions and people don't pay the rent and it just falls apart. And that's that's where we step in.
0: Sounds like there'd be premise of a good play. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad you you find my humor. Uh, you find me entertaining because I, I do. I think I'm incredibly <laughs> funny, so I'm, I'm glad you find humor in what I'm saying. Do you have a Do you have a uh, you have a, uh, a unit minimum? You know, inevitably you want to. It has to be worth the endeavor, the time, the all that but is there a, is there a minimum
1: yes yes 300 units is a minimum that we will enter a submarket
0: and What's we the enter, difference?
1: we don't like to have um, you know for each for each fund we don't want to have more than about 1500 units in a submarket cuz we really like the geographical diversification we're usually buying we're buying secondary and tertiary cities and we don't want to be overly invested in any one area So we're we're usually somewhere between 300 and 1500 units per submarket. 300 is a little bit small, but and and and, you know 1500 could be small if it's a secondary city. uh, But 300 is the absolute minimum. So I, I won't even look at 295 because 300 is really it's it's a little on the smaller side.
0: And wh- why is that? Because I, I mean, I not knowing any better, I'd think, well, two hundred if it's screwed up enough, but with quick enough fixes, you know, in relative terms. What's the magic around the three hundred number?
1: You know, I have to be able to manage. We we're fully vertically in- integrated, so we do all of our own management, construction, back office, uh, and we have to be able to manage in an economically efficient way, and so in order to do that, we have to have enough bulk to staff the properties correctly. And if the properties can't afford to have the right staff, then they're going to suffer. They're not going to do as well. And I can't, you know, we, our core office, we will get out to the properties a lot, but I can't be there every day. And so I have to have a really solid local team. And for us to be able to have that, we need the bulk of units.
0: Hmm. Why secondary, tertiary?
1: Primary cities are, tend to be, um, priced as primary cities, uh, which is not maximizing cash flow. We also, it's also hard to find the size in some of the, uh, some of the primary cities. Um, so it's mostly about pricing and size, but, we also and we also look we're looking for for cities that are very very stabilized but not necessarily growth cities and we also don't want declining cities so we want stable we want stable stable cities and that's we are typically finding these deals in the in these treasury markets uh primary cities you usually people are usually getting priced out of them so you have people living more on the outskirts of a primary city. So I mean, that's where we typically land.
0: And who, who do you sell to typically?
1: We sell to small private REITs or um, institutional buyers, maybe uh, family, they could be private family offices who are long-term holders who've been in the business a long time. We sell to people who are looking for anywhere from value add to turnkey assets. So I don't consider what we do as value add. It's a bit more extreme than that. We are buying opportunistic deals or um extreme value add. And we don't want to finish up a deal where we're taking off, you know, all the meat off the bone. We we want to leave room in a deal where when we come into a deal, there is so much to be done. We are only going to take it from one point to a next, and it can always go higher than that. Uh, we are not maxing out rents. We are not um, pushing up all of our current tenants to the highest rents we can get them to. We're not overbuilding. So there's always room at the end of the day for more, but also the properties are functioning very well when we leave them. And so if someone doesn't want to do a lot of work, they don't have to. So any anywhere in that range of, of value add to turnkey asset is is who we're looking for. We are in a particularly good niche because the really big guys don't want to do the heavy lifting that we do. They don't want to walk every single unit and talk to every single tenant. And um deal with a property that doesn't cash flow in the first year. You know, People always ask me, what cap rate are you buying at these days? And I said, (laughs) honestly, we don't look at cap rates when we buy the deal. We look at what the performance is, but we're not looking at the current cap rates. Because if you're looking at the current cap rates, I would say most of our deals are negative cap rate deals. We're buying deals that either negative cash flow or cash flow very, very little. So it's, it's kind of a, I I don't want to say it's an irrelevant number because it's a number. So it's a number that gets plugged into a model, but it doesn't really matter. It's just another, it's just another factor. It's just another number in the deal. I don't, I don't care if a deal is a a negative cap rate or a, you know, forecast when I buy it, that doesn't, it's, you know, that, that one variable doesn't really matter, but, um, what well, what I do look at is what is it going to be, and what's it going to cost me to get there, and how much money are we going to lose along the way? Those are the numbers I'm looking at. Um, what was the question I was answering?
0: Uh, I have I no idea. I, I forgot. I've, I've long I've long forgotten because I was on to my. I'm thinking about my next question, so I'm I forgot the last one. <laughs> so we sorry. both. We both. No, 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 no problem at all. Is the reason that you leave the meat on the bone? You're not you're pushing rent every, every last penny and you're not completely, is that the, is that part of the strategy though, too, so that some, somebody can come in and they could say, well, there's more room here to, you know, get an NOI up and blah, blah, blah. It's like, is it yeah. intentional?
1: Yes and no. And now I know what you asked me before. You said, who are our buyers? And right. and, and, and so I, I, I was trying to explain, you know, the, why people don't buy what we buy when we buy it. and, and then. How we create it, uh, a place for those people to step in and buy it later down the road. As far as why do we leave meat on the bone? It, again, there's just a lot to do. And for us, we want to get occupancy up. Occupancy up is key in what we do because vacant buildings are less safe. Um, vacant buildings do not create the atmosphere, the, 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 Culture that you want at the, at the property. It doesn't feel good to live in a building that's mostly vacant. So for us to achieve safety, uh, the right environment, uh, a place where tenants enjoy being, we want to get that occupancy up. So when we're looking at what are our rents going to be for our properties? We want to look at what is that submarket? What is that submarket rates? What are those submarket rents? when we come into it, and we wanna be on the, lo- the middle lower end of what those rents are, but we wanna deliver a product that's on the higher end of that. And therefore, that is going to fill up our properties as far as occupancy, and it's going to make our tenants really happy. <laughs> so, uh, same thing with we, we don't want our tenants to leave when we get there. We are not a company that goes in and tries to evict people and tries to, you know, push people out and displace people. That is not our thing at all. We want people to stay. And so, if we're jacking up their rents to the highest market rents, we're going to lose a lot of tenants that way. So, those aren't the first things that we're going to look at. And so, therefore, by the time we finish a project, we're not maxed out on our rents. We've just, we've, there's plenty of room to go on them so I guess it's not so much as leaving it as a tactic for sales although I guess that's a byproduct of what happens
0: I got it in the properties you're buying secondary tertiary uh, off market so is there what what does the competitive landscape look like for you on the buy side I mean are you rubbing elbows with other are you elbowing other people out okay. or
1: Uh, we're typically not bidding bidding against other people. We're not, if a seller is looking for the highest price, we are not typically the right buyer. So we're the right buyer when someone needs surety of close, Uh, when someone wants um, straightforward, open, honest dialogue and they want to get a deal done and they want to know if they have a deal and they want to know that they can count on that deal that's really where we come in. Um, also, if someone just doesn't have the uh, the right um, historicals, they just don't have any information to give uh. buyers. Uh, that's where we come in. Because we're really doing our own due diligence anyways. We're, it's great if someone gives us, whatever someone gives us, whatever a seller gives us, that's great information to have. But that's not going to sway us one way or the other. We're going to start from zero anyways when we start doing our due diligence. So we don't really bid against other people. And, and I guess that's what makes this kind of a market a better place for us. There's just there's more out there. And so there are more deals with without the competition on them. Uh, and that's typically also why we're buying things that are not on the market. So, yeah, we're not usually bidding against anyone.
0: <laughs> so how many deals do you typically have under ownership at one time?
1: It can range anywhere from I I guess it can range anywhere from like six to thirty deals at a time. It, it's sort of just depends what's going on in the
0: market. boy, that's that, that's that's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I was not I was not expecting that. And then uh, how do you raise capital? Inevitably, you've got you know happy investors, I mean, with those returns that probably go into deal after deal after deal. But are you, are you out continuously raising new money? Is it institutional money? Where does it come from?
1: Yeah, it's, it's both. We started with friends and family. Uh, then that became friends of family members and family members of friends and their friends and family and so on and so forth and extended out. So I don't know everybody anymore. So a lot of high net worth individuals that is the, that is a bulk of it. And then we get family offices and institutional investors as well. It's hard to get the. It's hard to get it completed with high net worth individuals because you know you're talking about investments of two hundred fifty thousand to a million five. You get into family offices, and then it gets a little larger. You know, one to ten million, um, but it's. It, you know, if you're our fund right now, we're about halfway through the raise of a of hundred million dollar fund. So we're fifty million into it. And it, it's you need some bigger players in in that field. You need the twenty five million dollar institutional investors and or, or or beyond that. Um so it's a, it's everything. It's a combination.
0: Wow. Um in, in terms of institutions like what kind? Like life insurance, pension, sure. You know yeah,
1: hedge funds. Um, fund of funds, pension funds, uh, all that. Mm
0: -hmm. All that stuff. My goodness gracious. First of all, you said you own a bunch of office and and you're clearly passionate about C class and you, you know, that's kind of your wheelhouse. I get that. But you said you own a bunch of office. What's your view on office? You you know, some people are contrarian and like, hey man, suburban office in the right place with the right tenants is probably great right now because it ain't going away and other people are scared to death. And what's your take on that?
1: Oh, it is tough. It is tough. Certainly there are deals to be had in the office place. The question is, what's going to happen to office? What's going to become of it? And when? There's, for me because I can't answer those questions, it's not a class I want to invest in. So if someone else thinks they can answer those questions, then office is a great, there's great deals right now. Um, I am not seeing people coming back to the office spaces the way that we need to see it yet. Will they ever come back? I sure hope so. I don't like this environment of of people working remote. I don't think it's healthy, and I don't think it's fun. I don't know how you can enjoy your job when you don't go into the office. It's, I, we have fun in our office. I, I don't know how you create teams and you know that kind of stuff. But so I don't know. I mean, there is you you can buy office and do adaptive reuse projects, but those are, that's, it's it's risky and it's expensive. And you pretty much have to buy that from the bank to make it work. You know, when you switch an asset class, someone's got to be slaughtered. Some money's got to be wiped off the table for that to happen. So I'm hesitant on office. I would not buy office myself right now. I, I do not like office at all. So I own it. Um, it'll, it'll, I, I, you know, we own it in really good locations and I think it'll come back. I just don't know when it will come back and you can't sell office today because people are getting slaughtered today. So mm-hmm. the key, if you own office today, the key is just to stay in it and try it as long as you're not negative cash flowing, just stay in it until you can get out of it. You can't sell it right now because too many Building too many uh, office owners are giving it back to the banks, and if someone can buy an office building out of foreclosure right now, they're not going to buy an office building that's not in foreclosure right now. So, not a great time. Um, but it, you know, if you're in a great location, yeah, it'll come back one day. I just don't. You know, I don't like making investments when that's the answer. It will come back one day. You, <laughs> know, you don't know the end game. I I only like to make investments when I have a plan A and a plan B and my plan B is solid. And I just, I'm just not seeing that in the office space.
0: So. If hmm. um, you had a mentor along the way, or do you figure all this stuff out on your own?
1: I think there've been a lot of smart people I've been able to work with and learn from um, over the years. I don't, I figured I did a lot on my own. So, um, and and again, I, I was dropped into this field in a, very forgiving time, you know, 2003 to 2008 was quite forgiving. So that was a, it was a good time to learn. And I, you know, I learned from, I have good relationships with, uh, with people I buy from and people I sell to. And I learned from everyone along the way. Um, everyone I work with all the time, the learning curve in this, in this industry is massive and it never ends. You know, I still am learning every day. Um, that's one of the things I love so much about it. Uh, there's just, there's so much. There's always something new. And the important thing is just to keep, um, keep asking questions. Like every, every time that I don't know something, I'm it completely, <laughs> I, I, I will uh, right away tell someone, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain that? And it, just helps continue my education constantly. So yeah, I guess tons of, tons of people along the way, not any one in particular, I don't think.
0: But What would you say are like the uh, key lessons you've learned?
1: Um, I mean, overall lesson is to all, always ask questions when you don't know the answer, to not have any sort of ego as far as not knowing something. Um, so that's like a big overall broad, you know, business lesson is just, um, ask for help whenever you need it. Uh, as far as real estate, you have to stay in it. You have to, you have to keep going. You don't, you don't want to try to time the market. Uh, although certainly when you see good deals out there, you want to keep buying as much as you can. But I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, again, I I don't like to predict things or at least I don't like to model off of my predictions. That's too risky. So, and and always to have backup plans. You can't, you can never, things might go the way you think they're going to go, but they probably won't. (laughs) So you got to have a lot of backup plans and constantly be readjusting and shifting and stay really flexible. Uh, so that when things do change, you're not stuck to the idea you had last week that is no longer relevant or that isn't the best idea anymore. And to be able to let go of that plan say, okay, this was the plan I thought we were going with, but it doesn't look as good today as it did before. And constantly to be reevaluating your deals of what, what are they today? What does it look like today in the present moment, as opposed to well, this isn't the way I thought it was gonna go. So I gotta get back to what I thought. No, just keep reevaluating it today. So it's flexibility, I think.
0: Flexibility. So non-sequitur last question. Why did you move back from LA to Chicago?
1: So California is a really specific real estate market, <laughs> a really interesting one to to learn in and 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 start with. I think it taught me fundamentals really well because you can't make you you have to um, you have to be pretty buttoned up. There's not a, a, a ton of room for error. Although, like I said, I, I learned in an up market, so that was a, a good time to learn. When we started getting hurt in the downturn, which we started to really feel those pains in 2009, the way that it manifested itself in California was everybody just froze. Nothing was bought. You couldn't buy. You couldn't sell. Deals just stopped. People weren't transacting and yet we were losing money. Uh, I would say we lost 50% of our tenants and rent, rents went down 30%. I mean, it was, it was a painful time. So I had to figure out how, cause like I said, one of the keys to real estate is staying in it. You, You can't let it go. You can't let, you can't sell when things are bad. So you have to stay in it. So how do you fund? negative cash flowing buildings when times get rough. You gotta find you gotta find something to, to fund that. So I started buying um single family homes, bought and sold about 70 single family homes in 18 months. Um, because that was what where we were seeing foreclosures. So that kind of fed it for a while, but that wasn't what I do. And so I had to start looking outside. There were no foreclosures in larger, in larger scales in California at that time. Maybe we were seeing, you know, one to four units maximum. That was it. So I am from Chicago, started seeing deals in Chicago um, that were going under foreclosure that were larger deals. And I thought, that's interesting. And the deals looked totally different than California. California is not a cash flow market. So California is an appreciation market. You can't, it's very hard to see like real cash flow in California. The, and yet the market keeps going up. So it, it's, it's more about appreciation there, which, um, once you leave that market and you start to see when I started looking at deals in, in Chicago, all of a sudden there's cash flow on these deals. I lived in a world where we traded negative cash flowing deals. We traded negative cap rate deals or maybe cap rates at two, three, 4%. And now all of a sudden I was seeing deals that were, that had incredible potential for cash flow. And that was something I wasn't used to. And so I thought, maybe I can live in both cities. Maybe I'll start moving some equity over there. And we've never, um, never lost money for an investor. So, I had to, we had to start figuring out how do we get out of these deals and how do we start putting, how do we start finding ways to make money again? And so I started moving equity from, um, California to foreclosure, larger foreclosure deals in, in Chicago. And we would say, all right, maybe this is the time where we walk away at a break even number or, uh, to, to be able to place our equity in a place that has this potential for cash flow. And after buying a few deals in, in Chicago and outside of Chicago and seeing, um, the potential there, I realized it's, I, I, I gotta, I gotta pick up and spend a little more time over there. And so I did and thought I'd live in both cities and, I I have children. And so that was like way too complicated. And so after I moved enough money to Chicago and the deals were looking so much better there, I started to, I decided to move to Chicago. And then after being in Chicago and buying deals there, then I started to look nationally. And that's when I started to, to branch out. And now I can't go back to California ever because it's, it's, it's so specific that it doesn't fit into a, a a great portfolio of other things like you're either in California or you're not. (laughs) New York is a little bit similar, but.
0: (laughs) I got it. I I got it. Um, very, 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 very interesting. So, so Amy, if one were to be so inclined to want to, um, make contact with you outside of this podcast and learn more, perhaps invest, how would they do that?
1: Um, they'd reach out to our, to our office, uh, I think our email is ir at clearinvestgroup.com is our investor relations. I'm easy to find too. It's, I mean, you can find me online. It's amy at clearinvestgroup.com, clearinvestgroup.com. Uh, and that's where, you know, that people can then ask about seeing our, our track records and seeing our decks and, um, looking at what our fund looks like. And, um, it's, it's an exciting time. It, this is this is the fun time to be investing in real estate.
0: I got it. Great words to end by. I am so glad we did this. You are so well-spoken and so focused and very clear in how you communicate. Uh, Very much appreciate it. And I hope to do this again with you at some point.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: You got it. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Bye. Bye.